Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Last week, we were delving into the realm of French foreign affairs during the 19th century, particularly during the time of Napoleon's reign, with discussing Charles Marie's Tariron. And during that episode, I had mentioned, we spoke about, pretty much for the last half of the episode, about his participation in the Congress of Vienna, this key defining moment in the history of Europe, um, both politically and in a way socially. Um, and today, considering that, I didn't really have enough time to do the Congress of Vienna justice, for what it's worth, and only really gave it a passing remark. But the Congress of Vienna, and which will be the focus of today's episode, as a more broad idea, is something really worth discussing, as the Congress of Vienna really set the tone for a conservative order that would last from 1815 until the start of World War I in 1914. So through this Congress, you saw, for the most part, a very stable, a very conservative order emerge in Europe. And because of how important it is, how many nations were involved, and the various sort of um, foreign policy ideas that came out of it, such as the idea of the balance of power, I think it's something worth an entire episode of discussion rather than just a passing remarks, um, passing remark in regards to Tariran, although he will come up in this episode and we will further delve into his own role since his role in the Congress of Vienna as a broader idea is incredibly important. But before we jump into the Congress of Vienna, let's give some context to what the situation is at the time. Now, many of you, actually all of you, are probably very familiar with the French Revolution. This surge of liberal ideas in the early, in the late 18th century into the uh, early 19th century, in 1789, which saw this resurgence of a very uh, liberal order. And but what I mean by liberal here was very... But I guess maybe we should start with defining conservatism at the time real quick. Um, we talked about this a bit in our Tocqueville episode, so if you haven't heard that one, I'd advise you go give it a go. You can find it on our SoundCloud. But we basically discussed about conservatism in the idea of the old regime. Essentially, conservatives believed in the idea of, as in socially at least, the feudal triangle. You have the king at the top, the nobles below that, the clergy below that, and then your peasants below that. And everyone has mutual obligations to each other. Um, um, but within France, that sort of had devolved over time, especially with the centralizing efforts of Louis XIV. So you saw this realignment of the feudal triangle to kind of be just one layer. Everyone's equal, but the king's on the top. Now, the liberal movement and the revolutions of 1789 are in part a reaction to this. At least many of the philosophical ideas that come out of the French Revolution are in opposition to this. But also more prominently were a number of famines, which had caused mass starvation, which the king was unable to solve, which eventually led 
to a culmination of revolts. So this conservative order, a very uh, religious order, a very socially status quo order of maintaining the monarchies, was what the French revolutions largely aimed themselves against. And for the most part, this had been self-contained within France. Throughout 1789 to 1799, um, France was only really fighting defensive wars. It really hadn't gone out of its way to spread liberal ideas and or to annex other territories. Although it had done some of that in northern Italy and Belgium as a more of a consequence of French invasions into those areas, but in the defense of France. It's not as if France declared wars aggressively with the cause of solely spreading liberal ideas and liberal values. But in 1789, with the 18th Brumaire and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte and these conquests, while Napoleon, you know, sought out and conquered a large portion of Europe, for a good part, his goal wasn't exactly, again, to spread liberal ideas, but he used these liberal ideas in the crafting of these new loyal states. And just by the very nature of the existence of the French Revolution, um, marginalized peoples from peasants to various ethnic groups across Europe were inspired by the success that Napoleon had brought, that the French Empire had brought under these liberal ideas that you know caused them to rise up against this conservative order. So this is what the Congress of Vienna is is basically challenging. It's reestablishing a conservative order after about 15 years of real social upheaval, a real challenge that saw the complete collapse of the old conservative order. So what the Congress of Vienna really represents is the creation of a more new conservative order. So as we were talking about, Napoleon Bonaparte goes on his conquest of Europe, starts going on from about... 1799 when he becomes the first consul of France until he's eventually defeated at Waterloo in 1815. So jumping into the more direct origins of the Congress of Vienna, the year is 1814, Napoleon is on the run after the Allies chase him back into France, and the Allies offer Napoleon one last chance at peace through what they establish as being the Treaty of Chaumont. The Treaty of Chaumont was basically the guarantee amongst the Allies' powers of, one, a commitment of around 150,000 forces to defeating France once and for all. Second, various um, stipends from Britain to ensure the payment of these troops since Britain was mainly the funder of the allied forces at this time and thirdly the agreement that no nation would individually negotiate with napoleon and that any negotiations after his defeat will be ones done collectively because for obvious reasons um, no one wanted austria or russia to suddenly back out of the invasion upon which napoleon could capitalize that and defeat the remaining armies and remain in power no one wanted that so this is was done to prevent it and the treaty of Chaumont was also um, the final chance that they gave to Napoleon to make peace. Napoleon would outright reject this for, some would call it selfish reasons in the sense that Napoleon didn't want to see his pride fall so heavily that he was so determined and so thought that he could defeat the Allies. But in reality, most of those around him, such as Marshal Ney and other various marshals and politicians within France, such as we discussed with Talleyrand last episode, thought it was essentially a doomed cause. So Napoleon eventually was defeated from France, would eventually return in 1815, but that's not too important to the conversation of the Congress of Vienna, but the Treaty of Chaumont is, because it's what basically guaranteed that after the peace, a conference between all these major powers would happen to restore this conservative order within Europe. Now, on top of establishing these basic principles of commitment to the war and that a peace conference in Vienna will be held between all of the various powers, the Treaty of Chaumont also 
included some of the fundamentals of what this conference would surround themselves with. It included the establishment of a confederated Germany, the division of Italy into independent states, and the restoration of the Bourbon kings of Spain, and the enlargement of the Netherlands to include what in 1830 would eventually become the modern kingdom of Belgium. And with this, the Treaty of Chaumont not only served as the unifying aspect of the Allies within the immediate 1814 war, but it also served as the long-term foundation for what the Congress of Vienna would set out to achieve. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're talking about the Congress of Vienna. We just got done setting up some of the context of the Congress of Vienna and also talking about the Fundamental Treaty of Chaumont, which helped uh, establish the basic principles of the Congress of Vienna. So the Treaty of Chaumont and with it the Treaty of Paris had established these fundamental principles of the Congress and it established that the opening would take place in July in 1814 and that those invited to attend would be issued to all of the powers engaged on either side in the present war. Although, as we'll come to find out, not every side certainly had an equal say, nor did every state have an equal say in the Congress of Vienna as a whole. Broadly speaking, the Congress of Vienna was talking about basic operational function of it. Functioned, as you could say, a very lively political court you'd find at the time. It was mainly functioned, diplomatic discussions mainly happened through various formal meetings, such as work groups. Um, however, a large portion of the Congress was mostly conducted informally at various saloons, banquets, balls. So you would have people just dancing, and then suddenly out of nowhere, the British... Uh, ambassador would pull you out of a dance and talk to you on the side about what you're accomplishing. So this was pretty much the broader scheme of how all of this is happening. And the reason why I bother to mention it is one, it's informative to know just how these things are conducted at the time, but also it'll go to show why a lot of powers were really on edge and why not pe people weren't on the same page and why there were largely a lot of what you could say Back backdoor dealings during it. These weren't taking place in large meeting halls where people were standing up and giving like 5, 10, 15 minute speeches about why Russia has a rightful claim to Poland. It was more so the Russian diplomat pulling the British diplomat aside during a ball and whatnot and going, hey, if you back me in support of Poland, I'm going to give you XYZ. It was a lot more of these backhand deals, these shady deals, than it really was upfront confrontation and outright justification for why someone should control or should have some term or clause. So let's go over quickly who was the major players in this. So the four great powers, which were the at the core of the Sixth Coalition, were probably the most influential and had the most say. And these were represented by Russia, who was represented at the conference by uh, Prince Clemens von Metternich, who was considered by many to be the main diplomat and the main spearhead of the Congress of Vienna and this new conservative order. Britain was represented by the first, its first foreign secretary, the Viscount Casare, and then the Duke of Wellington himself after Casare returned to England in February of 1815. Tsar Alexander directly controlled the Russian delegation, but it was formally led by the foreign minister, Count Karl Robert Nesselrod. And at this conference, as it'll come up later, the Tsar really had two main goals, to gain control of Poland and also promote the peaceful coexistence of of European nations, which would eventually culminate itself in the Holy Alliance in 1815, which was between uh, Germany at the time, Prussia, uh, Austria, and Russia, which focused on monarchialism, anti-secularism, 
and agreed to combat any form of revo revolution or republicanism on the continent. Prussia was represented by the Prince Karl August von Hardenberg and the Chancellor and Diplomat and Scholar Wilhelm von Humboldt. King Frederick William III of Prussia was also in Vienna, playing his role behind the scenes at these various balls and saloons, doing some of the backhand dealing himself. France, as we talked about last time, the sort of fifth power within the coalition, within this, these negotiations, although it was left out originally, was represented by, as if you could not guess already, uh, Charles Maurice Tarirán, as well as the minister penipotentiary, the Duke of Dahlberg. Interestingly enough as well, although we talked a lot about last time about how Talleyrand was really this imposing, this amazing diplomat at the conference, King Louis XVIII actually didn't trust him and was negotiating the entire time with Clemens von Metternich, the Austrian minister, by mail, as he didn't trust Talleyrand and didn't believe he was really advocating France's interests. Once again, another example of these backhand deals that were happening at the Congress of Vienna itself. So along with these four, five major powers at the Congress of Vienna, virtually every state in Europe pretty much was there, although these were the five major ones. There were more than 200 states and princely houses that were represented at the Congress. In addition, you had representatives of cities, corporations, religious organizations. Various abbeys had their own individual presences at the conference. Special interest groups had their own involvement. And a delegation representing German publishers, uh, what was actually there too, demanding a copyright law and freedom of the press. Although this being a largely conservative order, as you can mention, was dismissed by pretty much everyone and left off by pretty much everyone. Um, and the Congress was noted for, as I mentioned earlier, it's overall very lavish entertainment. With all these princes, all of these various stately houses, heads of corporations, heads of religious organizations, it makes only sense that instead of having these large formal kind of conferences, you had these balls where most of these negotiations were taking place. And according to a famous joke, the Congress did not move, but danced. As people, it was well reported that people would negotiate in the middle of a dance with each other. And, you know, you'd be dancing around the dance floor and you'd be like, hey, Russian delegate, wouldn't you, it'd be great if you had Poland? Well, why don't you give me this? And I'm like, oh, yes, that would be great. And this was just happening as you're twirling yourself around on the dance floor. So that's pretty much the Congress of Vienna and broadly a lot of what European courts and just what delegations and diplomatic ventures look like as a whole. Compared to the modern day, where you have these formal meetings, these are much more less. These are a lot less formal in the sense it's not talking one on one and giving much justification, as I mentioned earlier. It's a lot more of whining and dining sort of diplomacy, although that still does exist today. Um, it's definitely not what you see when you look at, for example, international institutions like the United Nations. So you had all of these various representatives, corporations, special interest groups, and major and minor nations all at the conference. And we're going to jump real quick right into the role of Talleyrand in all of this. I know we've already went over last episode um, more about that, so if you haven't listened to that, I advise you go listen to it for even more background as to who Talleyrand is. But I think it's important in the Congress of Vienna to really bring up Talleyrand just because it never been the intention of the Allies to even let France into the negotiations to begin with. And his involvement really did end end up changing how uh, the conference went as a whole. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 
FM. We just got done talking about the ongoing sin procedure and the attendance of the Congress of Vienna, and now we're going to jump into more so some of the actual negotiations themselves. And we're starting that by talking about probably the most important player next to Clemens von Metternich, that being Talleyrand. Initially, the four powers had meant to keep France out of the negotiations, but Talleyrand had managed to insert himself into the inner councils in the first few weeks of negotiations by allying himself with a committee of eight lesser powers, mainly including Spain, Sweden, and Portugal, whom were not major nations but were more minor participants on the Allied side during the Revolutionary War. And using this committee, he managed to make himself this fifth, quote-unquote, fifth power, this fifth major power in the negotiations. And as a result of this, Congress Secretary Friedrich von Jens would go on to say, the intervention of Talleyrand and Rabrador, the Spanish minister, had hopelessly upset all of our plans. Talleyrand protested against the procedure we had adopted and soundly betrayed us for two hours. It was a scene I will never forget, end quote. And this really goes to show what the Allies had intended. This conservative order had really sought to harm France initially. But with the inclusion of Talleyrand, you really saw the reversal of a lot of these decisions. So after the whole, as I'm going to call it, the Talleyrand affair, that being Talleyrand really upsetting this um, intention and these original ideas for the conference, the largest crisis you probably had is what came to be known as the Polish-Saxon crisis, which we sort of alluded to in the last episode. Russia, after in the peace treaty, wanted most of Poland which was liberated by Napoleon as an independent state, the Duchy of Warsaw. And Prussia wanted all of Saxony, whose king at the time had allied with Napoleon. The Tsar becoming the king of Poland was, fearf was something that was uh, very fearful to Austria, as it would make Russia much too powerful, something that was supported by Britain. The result of this was mainly a deadlock, for which Talleyrand would once again interject himself and propose a solution. In this solution, France would support Austria and Britain if they had allowed him into the inner circle of these five powers. Again, just making a brief reference to how he got himself involved in strengthening France's position in all of this. The three nations would end up signing a secret treaty on the 3rd of January, 1815, agreeing to go to war against Russia and Prussia if necessary to prevent the Russians from annexing Poland and Prussia from annexing the entirety of Saxony. Although Russia and Prussia would go on to annex parts of the Duchy of Warsaw, it would um, be with heavy concessions. These concessions were mainly in the sense that while the Russian king would receive pretty much all of the Duchy of Warsaw, he would actually be called Congress Poland with the Tsar as its king ruling it independently of Russia, meaning that Russian law would not be applied to the Polish state. The Russian uh, king and his decrees made in Russia do not exactly apply to Poland. There is a different government, different way of procedure within Poland. So in a way... It was basically the Russian king having two separate crowns, although for all intents and purposes, it really gave him control of it. Russia, as well, did not receive the province of Posen, which was given to Prussia as the Grand Duchy of Posen, nor the city of Krakow, which became a free city between Austria, Poland, and Russia. Furthermore, the Tsar would be unable to unite the new domain with the parts of Poland that had been incorporated into Russia in the 1790s. Prussia would receive 60% of Saxony, which would later become integrated as part of Russia's province, Prussia's pro province of Saxony, while the remainder would be returned to King Frederick Augustus I as the Kingdom of Saxony as it was. Outside of this major crisis, let's now jump into some of the larger consequences, some of the larger territorial changes and ideas in these final few minutes of the show here 
of the Congress of Vienna. One of the major things that you saw was the consolidation of Germany from nearly 300 states of the Holy Roman Empire, which was dissolved in 1806, into only 39 states, four of which were free states. A lot of these would be be merged into the state of Prussia, which would annex a lot of the territory along the Rhine Bank. And you would see going on that this unification of uh, these pr various states under Prussia and Prussian strengthening through this is really going to cause, in a way, the upset of the balance of power in the Congress of Vienna moving er into the later 19th century. As well as this, the German states were formed into a looser German confederation under the leadership of Austria, which Austria saw as the hopeful revival of the Holy Roman Empire, although it will become very apparent very quickly that Austria does not wield the influence within these new consolidated states that it once did, nor would the German confederation actually hold up for very long once Austria and Prussia started becoming rivals into the, in the late 19th century. Outside of these broader territorial changes, you really saw the restoration, for the most part, of the monarchs that came before. You saw the restoration of the Bourbons to France and to Spain. You saw the breakup of Italy into the former kingdoms and the restoration of the former houses onto it. And this is where the idea comes of a very conservative order. You basically saw a repeat of the status quo of what was before the revolutions of 1789. But, the re but it's important to note that it's a very different kind of conservatism that's emerging here. It's not a return to the old regime and what used to be. A lot of it does look the same, but this is a conservatism that's been tampered, that's been tempered, moderated by these ideas of liberalism. Almost no monarch following the Congress of Vienna is going to go back to the absolutist ways, with the exception of probably Russia. You saw the adoption, especially when it comes to 1848, the adoption of more constitutional, more liberal ideas, as many le leaders and rulers come to realize that the ideas of the French Revolution were not something that could simply go away. But regardless of that, the balance of power that was established in the Congress of Vienna and this new conservative order, what would, would be something that many historians claim to be the reason for the hundred years of peace you have roughly between 1815 and 1914. Thank you for joining us for this week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We won't have an episode next week as a result of spring break, but we will be back the week after to discuss another historical figure from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.